0: listening to limed teaching with a twist a podcast that plays with pedagogy on this episode of limed teaching with a twist we put a twist on our typical topics by chatting with someone outside of higher education trying to develop future leaders in a professional setting John Chesky teaches within the Developing Young Professionals program at L.F. Jennings, a Washington, D.C. area construction company. His short sessions on negotiations are part of a program aimed at preparing young professionals to be leaders within their company and their field. Brooke Buffington, Jennifer Plutania, and Andrea Sheets share their experiences and expertise in professional development and the transition from graduate to young professional as we provide John with some ideas of how to get the most out of his bite-sized seminar-style learning environment. I'm Matt Whitstein, and you're listening to LIMED, teaching with a twist. John Chesky, welcome to the show. It is so good to talk to you today. Would you just introduce yourself to our audience real quick? My name is John Chesky. I'm a senior project manager for
1: LF Jennings Incorporated, a general contractor in the Washington, D.C. area. I teach and facilitate courses for our young professionals, uh, small, bite-sized, three-hour courses focused around certain topics to help young professionals and their development.
0: So LF Jennings is a general contractor. What type of work do they do? And is the teaching and facilitating young professional development your primary role? Teaching is not my primary responsibility at L.F. Jennings. My
1: main responsibilities are the day-to-day management of multiple projects, multifamily uh, housing, apartment complexes, uh, stadiums, entertainments. The teaching is a, a volunteer responsibility uh, that I've taken on as part of our development goals.
0: How did you get started with working into the professional development side of things?
1: It has something that's been always come naturally to me. I love helping and teaching people, especially if it's subjects I'm passionate about. The request initially came in from the Human Resources Department within my company. Uh, We were looking to establish a new training program for young professionals, which is loosely and roughly defined as uh, people who are within five years of graduation or five years or fewer within the industry, specifically commercial construction. One of the things that's nice about where I am is that it is a family owned business and a lot of the people who are there are there for a very long time. And by creating the investment and the developing the interest in the younger group of people uh, is both good practice for the long term health of the company and also provides additional benefits to the to the people who are volunteering for the program.
0: So I really want to know a little bit more about your actual classroom. What do you teach? What does that look like? The way
1: that the young professionals program is structured is that every month, the group of young professionals uh, is given an experience or a classroom setting or a reading or a discussion or a town hall uh, that is individually structured around a different topic or idea. I specifically have been teaching the negotiations for multiple years at this point. Initially, when we started it, it was a how-to-negotiate course, but it has slowly evolved over time as an identification of negotiating biases in order to matriculate the people through. We offer... Multiple years. So there's year one, year two, year three, and I do the year one negotiations course. Uh, there's normally in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 people. Uh, a lot of them are in house uh, administrative and project management teams, uh, although we also have people who are young professionals who work in the field. The other thing that's important to note is that although the vast majority of the people coming into this are young professionals, we'll say 26 years of age and younger. The other qualification or eligibility option is people who have been within the industry for five years or fewer. That opens up a wide variety of other options because there's people who maybe moved from a different industry or from retail and moved into construction. And they have a whole host of other life experiences that younger people who are just starting out in their professional endeavors don't always have. So you end up with a wide range of both educational experiences and you end up with a wide range of professional experiences as well. So one of the challenges we often come across is with our bite-sized three-hour seminars, our trainings, our introductions to large swaths of topics, how do you best tailor it for maximum impact across? All of these different requirements, all of these different experiences, all of these different educational backgrounds, because they come from different experiences within even the same company, uh, it provides a uh, a wide diversity of backgrounds and opinions.
0: So, what are some of the techniques you use to teach negotiations?
1: The main thing that we use is we use two different role play scenarios within within the three hour class that we that we conduct. The first one is nice and simple. It's directly from uh, the Harvard School of Negotiations, which is uh, colloquially known as the ultimatum game, where two people have to come to an uh, agreement. If those two people come to an agreement, they can share the amount of I use candies uh, that are in the in the bowl in front of them. Uh, it's nice. It's quick. It's easy. It talks about power dynamics. It talks about Uh, It talks about making opening offers and gambits, and it also talks about fairness, which is very important. A lot of people underestimate how important fairness is as opposed to being rational. And uh, I get a lot of really good discussions out of that, especially because it only takes approximately five minutes, and it's a great way to lead off a class. The second thing that we do is a more detailed uh, negotiation. It's a one-on-one negotiation that I have developed Uh, where I provide the prompts. It's uh, precisely one page, uh, and it is the same number of words because that was feedback I'd received in the past, but it is a a negotiation between an agent and an artist, and they are required to read the prompt beforehand. And then when we go to break out into groups, they're assigned groups that I try to cross-mix with people who come from either different divisions or departments, So that way I try to avoid having conversations where I try to avoid situations where people who have offices back to back with each other or who share projects with one another or are more familiar, I try to make sure that they're not in the same group. So we're not bringing in previously existing biases or experiences. So I do that. My largest concern and part of the reason that I am talking about the respect of time is that. I would love to do more. However, I think requiring for a volunteer, on a volunteer basis, more than a couple of pages of reading in a non-traditional academic setting, uh, with at some, a certain point in time, will butt up against the place where more people will forego the reading or forego the prerequisite in and show up and then possibly provide a less than desirable experience for the people who did the reading.
0: What are some of the things that that has worked well for you in uh, the first few times you've done this, and where are you looking to go with sort of the next couple times?
1: Uh, Well, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, feedback of the participants is incredibly useful when uh, both creating and iterating within the classroom setting. My human resources director, the person running the program, is uh, gracious enough to send out surveys. We get a very good response rate back, as you would expect from a group that is volunteering to do this process initially, and a lot of it has been in the realm of setting expectations, setting uh, goals, clear ideas on what we're looking to accomplish, being able to verify that, creating a check process at the end. Initially, when I started running these courses, it was very much of a, do you have any questions at the end? And it became much more of a sharing opportunity where it's tell us one thing that you learned or you thought was neat or something you had never thought of before. And it could be anything uh, that you have picked up within this last three hours. And one of the things that we've discovered is that people are really interested in sharing, but when other people have the same realization or epiphany, it creates additional conversations that happen outside of the structure. And I see those people having the conversations and that's Really nice and beneficial in the long run because you can extend the learning, kind of have an afterburn effect where people are still engaged because now they're realizing the things that they didn't know, other people didn't know, and it creates a
0: higher level of discussion. I would imagine with those diverse backgrounds that you just described, that your students probably also have really different goals that they're hoping to achieve through being part of this program. Do you have any sense of what some of those goals might be for? some of the different folks in the classroom? Well, one of the things I
1: love about this particular program is that it is 100% volunteer. There's nobody who's being required or compelled to be there. Uh, A lot of the people are looking to create a good, strong foundation for their professional careers. I assume, and what I would hope, is that everybody who comes into the course Uh, is there because they are trying to better themselves in just a slight way. And that's one of the things that we've always spoken about. What we do is try to discuss and open up the possibilities of understanding, looking at both what the big intent of each one of the individual topics is, while also giving them the basis and the foundations to identify some of the ways that they interact in those situations.
0: In some of our previous conversation, you had mentioned that um, some of the ways things get done in your industry are sort of the ways it's always been done, which is a, a typical phrase we hear often. Do you have any examples of ways you want to move that and shift that to new ways to do things within a professional development program?
1: Construction is a an industry that is as old as time. And a lot of things, because they work and they're effective, uh, continue forward. One of the things that I think we're looking at as an industry, is that uh, not dissimilar to a lot of other places, is that there's a donut hole effect. We have a lot of people who have been in the industry for a very long time. And we have a lot of people who are new to the industry. And there's this kind of gap that exists between the first cohort and the second cohort. When we talk about providing people the opportunities, we talk about not only shaping the people who are going to, you're going to work with today, but theoretically the people who are going to lead this industry 20 or 30 years from now. So one of the things that we've come to realize is that as the industry continues to change, uh, we get more modernized, we move digitally, that some of the younger generations, the younger professionals have the opportunity uh, because they are native to this. I have a more diverse perspective from people who've grown up uh, as digital natives, if you will, That. They have abilities to provide input that are beneficial on the whole in the long run and in the short term. Uh, And it goes for not just our digital natives. It's people who come from a diverse range of backgrounds and perspectives, people who understand uh, how things work in different areas of country, different cultures, different educational experiences.
0: It sounds like this professional development program that your company is developing is really a means to reinvigorate opportunities for leaders that come from all sorts of backgrounds. What is the piece that we can help you with as an instructor uh, that I can focus some of our panel's conversation around?
1: So for me, it is really threefold. One, being able to provide the amount of prerequisite work for a wide variety of students who have different backgrounds and experiences that is not going to bog them down. That moves nicely into the second piece, which is having the ability within those three hours to provide them with the most bang for the buck, if you to value their time, to give them benefit, to make sure they're deriving uh, the appropriate experiences from, from the lesson, from the seminar. And then the third is making sure that there's a continuing education piece. Again, because it's such a short period of time, I don't always get to have the conversations that I want to have. And unfortunately, quite frequently, we shut down really productive conversations with the goal of continuing and finishing the set course material, as opposed to saying, this is a valuable thing. We should continue to have this conversation.
0: John, so as I bring this back to our panel, I'm seeing three big pieces you want us to address. You have diverse learners coming from all sorts of backgrounds. How do you get them up to the same page to be ready to engage in your class? Second, how to take this workshop style format, this sort of three hour, one shot, that's all you get, uh, format and get a lot of um, content and experience into that time. And then third, thinking about ways to continue that education, maybe in more informal ways through the relationships that they develop uh, with you and and with their peers. Uh, And those are the things that I think our panel are going to focus on. How's that sound?
1: That sounds wonderful. I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say.
0: Awesome, John. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, We'll be back in touch in, in a little while. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure. Brooke, Jen, Andrea, I am so excited to have you on the show. We had a cool conversation with my friend, John Chesky, about some professional development. And I want you to answer this question uh, to help you introduce yourself to our audience is what do you view as the best trends in professional development today? Brooke, I'm going to lead off with you.
2: Great. Thank you so much. I'm Brooke Buffington. I am the director of the Student Professional Development Center at Elon University, which is a long way of saying our career services office. I'm so happy to have the chance to talk about professional development. It's what I talk about every single day. Um, so when you ask about what's the trend in professional development, I would say with COVID, one of the trends that I really saw was access Right. Um, When people were uh, working from home and working in virtual environments, all of a sudden there was a lot more access to different learning modules online, to different upskilling certificates online that maybe weren't there before. So access has really broadened, which has provided a lot more opportunity for professionals that maybe wasn't there before.
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Jen Platania. I serve as the associate provost for academic affairs at Elon University. I think one of the things under my role, a lot of what I think about is obviously under academic affairs, I think a lot about curriculum. Um, and so one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about at Elon in particular is micro-credentials and how those can help both our students and our alumni. Um, so I think, you know, Matt, when you ask about the the best trends in professional Development. I think one of the the ones I don't know whether it's the best or not, right? But we've been seeing and thinking about the most is micro credentials. Um, Elon has recently undertaken a new digital badge initiative for our current students. Um, we also have an Elon Next program, which is a series of different courses, micro credentials that either students or alumni or community members, anybody can take at Elon. Um, but I think we've been we've been thinking a lot about what that looks like, um, and I think these micro credentials, you know, as opposed to a four-year degree, obviously a micro. Are really, It's a nice, it's a succinct, it's an easy way to, to upskill um, and to really either either expand your current skill set or really try something new. Um, so I think this is one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about at Elon, and I think that industry professionals are as well.
4: My name is Andrea Sheets. I do Workforce and Economic Development in Versailles County, North Carolina. The biggest trend or best trend I've been seeing um, is upskilling and reskilling of workers, especially in the face of automation. Companies in the tightly record of the last couple of years, and as well as um, cost cutting technologies sort of putting workers out of jobs. And so to really um, for workers to keep advancing, um, kind of doing those two year certificate programs um, that allow them to move within their industry or to a different one. And also um, the shorter education opportunities allow for more economic opportunity. And so as wages fluctuate and different industries emerge, it really provides more accessible education for a much higher wage.
0: I really like the overlap in all of your answers. So diving right into it, you all brought up the concept of upskilling and Andrea, you mentioned reskilling. Can you talk a little bit more about, from my perspective, upskilling is like learning a skill I didn't learn in school, but does it have a broader definition?
4: I don't know the technical definition, um, Brooke might, but that's one where, you know, I really see it um, as if someone is in an industry and working for a few years, but they choose to kind of take their to the next level. They'll go back to school, get that additional certification, credential, um, even if it's just take a couple courses, it'll vary within their industry. I learned a couple weeks ago that there are many different types of welding and you can get a credential in a different thickness and it changes that way, but that makes you or a worker um more attractive to employers. I'm sorry. And so that's one where kind of you know navigating the landscape and making the employee more marketable, just having more skills. Um, I was at a manufacturing plant a couple of weeks ago where the way they get all of their cans off of the plant into trucks, um, there are no more forklifts. It's all an automated roll-in. And so all of those forklift operators are now out of a job, but if they can you know, go back to a manufacturing curriculum and get a job in that same plant, they're in a much better situation.
2: Yeah, I really like what you said, because uh, in your first um, response about the workforce changing and the needs in the workforce changing, and that's because of the digital, just buy-in from every organization to create efficiency using digital tools, that's going to continue to happen. So as employees, upskill the definition is really to teach an employee a new skill right to teach an employee a new skill is the definition of upskilling so it's seeing where with the forklift off, off operators there is no longer going to be a job. What skill can we teach them that's going to then allow them to be um, a contributing contributing member to the organization? Um, the jobs that our students, when we're looking at um, our undergraduate population, are coming in for as first years may not even be in existence um, when they come in as a first-year student um, when they graduate as a senior, right? So we think A a social media influencer, a person who supports an influencer was not a job five years ago. Now that's, you know, a a pivotal part of that industry. So the upskilling is a critical uh, component um, with this changing workforce need.
3: I think that's such a great point. And I would add, too, as we've thought a lot about sort of our micro-credentials and digital badges, I think one of the things that's really important is to is a collaboration and a coordination between institutions of higher ed and industry executives and partners, right, to see what are those skills that are going to be needed, right? Because, you know, in higher ed, I mean, we know a little bit but we really only know by talking to employers. I mean, Brooke, you know this better than anybody. Um, and so I think we've been thinking a lot about how can we, again, coordinate and collaborate with employers right? And with industry professionals to know what exactly are the skills that they're looking for now, right? And how can we help to provide those?
2: And even workforce professionals, like what Andrea is doing, because she's hearing from multiple organizations within her area that are saying we have workforce needs and skills that aren't being met. Um, and how can the both the organizations in the areas and the institutions in the areas support those needs? So it really does all work together.
0: So I was able to chat with John Chesky, who is a senior project manager at LF Jennings, which is a uh, construction company based out of Washington, D.C., his full-time role is to be a a project manager, to manage their contracts and, and building projects and so on, Uh, but he's taken on sort of this volunteer responsibility to teach within their young professional development program. And this program is a multi-year, they meet about once a month with a a smallish cohort of young professionals, which they've defined as five years or fewer within the industry. He actually only teaches one course within that. He teaches a fundamentals of negotiations course. And that course is sort of this workshop style course. And what you all were sharing about upskilling and reskilling really reflects LF Jennings' need to have new leaders that they're lacking in their current field. Where I want to direct this conversation um, to start is when we're thinking about that micro-credential, we're usually thinking of short-term courses. In John's setting, he teaches a workshop about a fairly complex topic, negotiation. Uh, How do you get the most bang out of your buck in that sort of setting?
3: So maybe I'll take this right as we think about sort of how do we get, you know, now I think back to my, my days teaching in the classroom, right? How do you get the most out of your students in a short amount of time? Um, I think one of the ways that, you know, the, that certainly the scholarship and the research has shown is, is by engagement, right? I think students learn more when they're more engaged. Um, So engaged learning is, is a really important component, especially when you only have a short amount of time with students. Um, So I would suggest to John, you know, try and get the students as engaged as quickly as possible and as deeply as possible um, in the short amount of time that he has, you know, in a negotiations course, I could see him doing, you know, some role-playing and some, um, you know, to have some some different exercises where students were engaged in different, you know, in in different possibilities um, or, you know, different aspects of negotiations. And I think that could be a really effective way for him to use that time. Yeah, I was second
2: the role playing. So we we do a lot of professional development work, right, in our career services office. And We can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but until the students um, and young professionals actually practice it, it doesn't stick. So role-playing is critical for negotiation and even role-playing under pressure, right? Not role-playing with the person that you came to the session with, that you're comfortable with and already have a relationship with, but role-playing with another instructor, potentially if you could bring in some other leaders within the organization that might feel a little bit more intimidating to the young professionals that are in the room, because most likely those that they're going to be negotiating with aren't going to be maybe their peers, Um, they're going to be somebody that that has a bit of a a, a power over them. And so they need to be able to feel that in in, um, as much as possible in the session itself. So I, I absolutely think that that experiential component is really important. And even potentially, Dividing up some of the more nuanced pieces of, of negotiation, sending them out, um, if he's got a lot of different types of learners in the room, to the researchers in the room, um, and having them teach, you know, some of the fine, uh, teach, uh, so having them part of the education, right, having the students becoming the educators oftentimes makes the space really dynamic as well, is what I'm trying to say.
4: I think also with one of the more soft skills like negotiation, um, it'll be different for every individual. And so if there's some sense of application and self-analysis there, you know, for, for a student to think through, when they were in a negotiation and how that went and what they could have done better um, kind of alongside John's curriculum. I was in a um, handling conflict workshop a couple weeks ago, and I had a pretty sizable one about a week before that. And it was part of me wishes I could have gone back and done it better um, with what I had learned. And so I think kind of that self-reflection will serve the students very well.
0: So when we think about this sort of workshop format, very often when you go to a workshop, you're not, you don't have students that are going to do a lot of pre-work. They're not, you don't have homework that you're going to send them home with, maybe stuff that they could work on individually. Uh, what's the extent that you can expect uh, students or participants, young professionals, to prepare for this type of learning experience and how might you encourage them to do that? Andrea, I want to start with you. You just mentioned having attended a workshop. Did you have to do pre-work? How much pre-work did you have to do? Um, how much would you be willing to do for something that you're volunteering for?
4: Absolutely. A lot of the ones I attend are part of larger conferences. And so they're, they might give pre-work, but the odds of it getting done are much lower, but I think just the general topics, um, this one was Handling Conflict, I've been in other negotiation ones, and that one was right before I accepted a job offer, so I had that one on my mind, but having, you know, a general sense of what it's going to be about, maybe asking attendees to think about a couple situations, um, past or upcoming that um, they have ready to go, but I think also, you know, there doesn't need to be much pre-work, I don't think so, um, for the students to really get all they can, so some is good, but you don't want to rely on it so much. When you can kind of probably assume that a third to half of people, if that, aren't going to do it in the first place.
3: You know, I think another thing that's really important, um, and as, a, as an economist, and Andrea will appreciate this as a fellow economist. Um, but you know, I think making sure to to articulate the benefits of the, the the develop the professional development opportunity for for the for the attendees right i mean i think that you know anybody's people are self interested right so people are going to do things that they know are going to help themselves and i think these types of professional development opportunities are fantastic for for new for young professionals in their fields and so i think really i mean one of the most important things that i would think in my mind is articulating the benefits of doing this right if if participants see the benefits of doing this for themselves i think they're far more likely to engage Pre work or homework or whatever it might be, um, because they they see the value to themselves.
2: What could be interesting there, as you say that, Jen, is really then looking at the assessment at the end, right? Because the assessment, if you can capture some of the impact on the learned material and how they're the participants are planning on utilizing it, or maybe if you assess three weeks after or four weeks after how they actually have utilized it, then you've got a narrative to tell the next cohort coming in, that next class coming in, that that drives
3: that impact. Yeah, I agree, Brooke. I think you can tell some really great stories through data.
0: And this kind of leads me into my next question. You've all hinted at it a little bit of that, even though the class ends at the workshop, the learning doesn't necessarily end at the workshop. And you've talked about how to maybe bring parts of their individual you know, job functions or individual identities in, into the classroom space uh, to sort of enhance their engagement. Uh, What are some mechanisms, especially in this sort of low-touch setting, to encourage that sort of um, that sort of learning?
2: Yeah, so I think the assessment is really because it makes them take that reflection time that was mentioned earlier—a chance to actually process and reflect. How have I used this? What did I take away from it? And how has it impacted my work? But then just offering the opportunity, but in a Low risk, high reward setting. So, is it coffee and co-working that you bring people back together? They don't have to have prepared material. They don't have to have, you know, even reflected on um, on the conversation of the workshop. But it offers another chance, two three weeks after the workshop itself, to bring some some people together who all um, have that common um, common engagement to just debrief a little bit more afterwards. We do that with our staff. When we have a workshop come in, we typically do a debrief or a coffee and co-working a couple of weeks after to say what impacted, what hit, what stuck and how how have you used it?
3: Yeah, Brooke, I was going to say something very similar. I think when I've done workshops here on campus, one of the things, because, you know, these, these professionals are going to be together for, you know, a significant amount of time. I mean, three hours for this workshop, but really this program, right. It sounds like is about a two-year program. Um, And so they're going to form some communities, right. And so how could you leverage, right. The bond, you know, the, the, the relationships that they're forming during these, during these workshops and during the overall program. So to the extent that you can bring them back, like I said, when I do workshops on campus. Um, We'll do a day-long workshop, for instance, but then give folks the opportunity to sign up, right? To say, all right, in two weeks, right, who wants to meet over lunch or coffee, right? And just talk about this a little bit more And, and make it something that's, you know, that's again incentivized, right? So I'll buy coffee for everybody that wants to show up and, you know, sort of think about this this question that, you know, came up that everybody seemed interested in and we didn't have a chance to, or, you know, can we reflect on some of the things that we talked about today? So I think, you know, building on the relationships that are formed during these during these professional development opportunities can can be really powerful as well, and that sort of creates this more lasting this lasting thing that carries through beyond just the three hour workshop.
4: I'll add that in a situation like this, where the employer is running the program for all of their employees, they have a sense of you know the situation, the negotiations that their employees will have to deal with, and if they can start to think through any upcoming contracts and how they could apply maybe take the last 20 minutes of class and how can they apply what they've learned here to what's upcoming. Um, and there's some follow through there and action steps and then other people on that project um, can tag team that as well. And now say one
2: more thing to that. I really like the follow-up steps because it gives you a takeaway, right? A, a takeaway to go into your next job with a mindset of how am I gonna utilize what I just learned? But with that potential regathering of the cohort, it isn't always need to be about celebrations. Let's talk about, you know, what we tried and didn't work too. Offering um, space for failure or missteps. I think oftentimes really, um, maybe some people don't come because they feel like they haven't been able to institute what they learned or they don't feel like they've achieved at it. So offering space for both the celebrations of uh, learning achieved and missteps when you, uh, learning was tried and celebrating that as well. Because we, We're not always going to hit it on the first, you know, hit it out of the park the first time, but we still want to encourage um, that learning to be initiated.
0: As you think about this setting of uh, being a sort of long-term program in short little pockets of of one-day sessions and um, town halls and social gatherings types of things, what are some of the challenges that you anticipate that type of program would need to be prepared to address?
3: I think maybe one of the challenges that they'll face is ensuring that you've got sort of a commitment to the program, right? So something that only happens very occasionally, sometimes there's not that level of deep commitment um, because you're not doing it on a regular basis. So uh, again, I think, you know, ensuring that participants have things that they can be thinking about or working on and be sure to articulate the benefits to themselves, right, of doing such um, could be really helpful i go back to what i said before that i think one of the the biggest you know maybe not the only benefit but certainly a large benefit that comes out of these things are the relationships that are formed and so i think maybe you know encouraging folks to get together right in in between sessions um you know maybe you maybe you have Sometimes it works better than others, right? But more formal sort of, you know, mentoring opportunities within, right? And those kinds of things can happen outside of the sessions. Um, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of literature, obviously, on the importance of of mentoring and having, having a person, right, or a set of people, right, that you can rely on for help and support. Um, so those sorts of things, you know, again, just because the sessions are only happening occasionally doesn't necessarily mean that the communication and the relationships only have to happen occasionally.
2: You talk about engagement and making sure that uh, engagement is they're invested, right? Their supervisors need to be invested is a big piece of this and industry, right? So if you're part of a program, but you don't have the bandwidth or your supervisor doesn't respect the program, uh, doesn't ask, I, I kind of wrote down three terms, ask, advocate, and support the program, right? So the supervisor needs to ask and advocate. What did you learn? Um, how have you incorporated it? They need to, to know at least... Uh, kind of the structures of the program so that they can follow up with the participants and show, you know, through inquiring themselves about it,
4: that they're in support of the program and provide space. I will second what Brooke said um, with that prioritization in the workplace and just one of the biggest challenges that I've experienced as well as other young professionals is just, you know, balancing everything, all of the competing priorities. And so, um, you know, usually things that are, one-off and don't have a deadline and a supervisor like a young professionals group might fall off the radar and if they're irregular suddenly that's a few months that you know someone hasn't gone and are they really engaged and so I think providing that space and ensuring it's a priority throughout the organization to the individual communicating the benefits could really help but the supervisors need to be supportive as well.
0: I'm going to circle back a little bit to something we talked about in the beginning. In thinking about um, upskilling, reskilling, uh, micro-credentials, it sort of has this sense that we're not preparing our students to actually be in the workforce. And I want to just create space to have that conversation of, of what we're doing well in higher education and where corporations may need to come in to develop those specific skills. I would I would just love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Oh, I could jump uh, into that, <laughs> right? So when we look at workforce, there's soft skills and there's hard skills. And what your friend is really trying to do is take people who have identified as having those hard skills that the organization needs, such as the project management skills, potentially some software skills, um, but they want to really help them hone their soft skills so they can become leaders, leaders and managers, right? Um, and that they can take that next step in their uh, learning to be, you know, future presenters to the same type of workforce um, of young professionals. So I think what higher education does a really good job of is creating a foundation, right? Especially at a school like Elon, where we have a liberal arts core curriculum, where all of our students are learning some essential skills about understanding people's differences, um, critical thinking, discussions, um, really, really trying to grapple with problems that don't have solutions, right? Because most of the work that we're all doing doesn't have just an easy solution to the problems that we're being faced. And so our students are learning that in the classroom of how to grapple with, with problems that don't have just clear and obvious solutions. Um, now, where the upskilling comes in is that, like I said at the beginning, technology is constantly changing. A platform or a software that somebody's going to use today in the workforce a year and a half from now might be completely obsolete because there's a new technology out there. But what the student needs to know and what we're helping them to learn in higher education is how to learn a new software system, period. So that way the next time they have to learn another new one in the workforce, they can learn it faster. They become more efficient and more effective with that software in a a much shorter amount of time, right? So it's, it's creating learning agility is part of what I think we do well in higher education.
3: Ditto.
4: I will also add that um, a lot of those soft skills are gained through the extracurricular experiences, um, and that's something that is really on the individual student to take advantage of. Um, I can tell a difference in my peers, and both from Elon and other um, just other people I work with, you know, who really took advantage in what they're doing now. And that's something that you know the university can provide, but it's there's a degree of personal responsibility there, and. I think that in itself is something that we should maintain and I think enough of it is embedded in the curriculum as it is, but that's on the student and I, you know, Elon communicates the benefits, but it's on them to take advantage.
2: I love what you said about personal responsibility, Um, because one of the things I wrote down when we were talking very early on about professional development is there's there's the The professional development, that is your skilling, right? What skills do I have that I'm bringing to the table? And then there's the personal development, which is what is my narrative and pathway? And how do I want to use that for my next step? And what you're talking about is young professionals owning that narrative and pathway, which is there's a a component of responsibility where it's not the organization's job. It's not your supervisor's job to tell you what that is, but for you to go after it and and gain the, the components that you don't see that you have. And the parts of the story that you want to build into your professional path.
4: And I think that's what we're seeing with John's course and the young professionals program. And that it's those, those employees who attend, who buy in, and who get the most from the program that will end up being promoted and filling that donut hole of managers in the middle. And they'll see those benefits as well.
0: One of the things I want to think about in John's context, I imagine most of his participants are men. Um, I am speaking to a panel of all women, so that uh, we should probably acknowledge that difference right there. But I do want to ask the question of just generally speaking, how can managers and um, workplace mentors and leaders within an organization really help support some of that work-life balance? And specifically, John, who's not at a very high elevated position in his company. How can he be a a supportive person for his learners?
2: I think one of the things that when we're coaching young professionals and looking at um, upskilling young professionals is recognizing that the balance between work and life uh, completely exploded um, when COVID happened because we all were invited into each other's homes. Um, And all of a sudden, it kind of smeared this line that was already getting there, but it just blurred it very quickly. And so young professionals, I think are really trying and potentially struggling with how, like like you talk about bandwidth, like what is my, you know, what am I bringing into the office? And I may not even be going into it, but what am I bringing into the office with me? And what am I, where am I drawing my lines on a personal professional standpoint? Because it's fascinating right now. And I think it's especially impacting
4: those that didn't have a baseline before. That's definitely something that talking with some friends and myself I've dealt with in, you know, in Elon class was in between my internship, which was in between when I hang out with my friends. And so everything was somehow both personal and professional a little bit. And, you know, realizing that there's a hard cutoff for things um, has just been a big transition as well. But then, you know, also there's that balance of, I'm young, I'm starting out, I want to be hungry and, you know, work late and do what I need to do to really make my mark, I think, especially at a higher level, really any higher than entry level, recognizing that when you do ask an entry level person for something, even if it's just an email, a text, a Teams chat, there's a level of power there, especially when they're first starting out and trying to understand the organizational dynamic. And so, you know, if someone higher up, then you ask you for something after five o'clock, there's a question of do I absolutely have to respond right now? And so, you know, kind of setting that tone, that expectation very early on from the highest level possible of whether it is expected or whether it's not, making sure that's communicated and consistent throughout the organization.
2: I absolutely second that because everybody's work styles are different. And uh, one of the terms that's being used right now is work life integration versus work life balance because it's recognizing that. What is balance? Is it such a thing? what is what does integration look like? and how can I be very purposeful and thoughtful about how I integrate my work and my life together? Um, but setting those kind of unspoken rules, expectations with young professionals, uh, one of the best taglines I saw in somebody's email that I really liked. Um, this was a leader who said uh, at the very bottom of the email. It said, "Just because this is a good time for me to send an email doesn't mean it's a good time for you to send an email. Please respond at a time that works with your work schedule." Um, and it gave permission to maybe somebody, if there was a, a power differential, to not respond right away, um, just through that uh, that kind of under under their signature line.
3: And you know, I think it's important in these development programs, such as the one that your friend John is working on, that. to to make sure that we're thinking about teaching our future leaders, right? How to be conscious and cognizant of these things, right? How to be conscious of the messages that they're sending, right? When they do send emails after five um, or, you know, how to be conscious of how they're coming across when they do act, ask entry-level professionals for for work to be done and when they ask it for it to be done and in what short amount of time or long amount of time. Um, So I think incorporating, you know, ensuring that the company is incorporating those sorts of, of, of development processes, right, for their future leaders. Um, again, just to, to teach them about the culture of the institution and about how they might need to be mindful of that is really important as well.
0: I've really enjoyed this conversation and I think I have a lot of stuff to take back to John. I want to thank you all uh, for your time and your wisdom uh, and for being a part of our show.
3: Thanks, Matt. Thank
4: you. Thank you, Matt.
0: John, welcome back. I really enjoyed talking with our panel about your Negotiations Workshop and Young Professionals Program.
1: I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. I've been thinking about it for quite some time.
0: Our panel all had ties to Elon University, and it included Brooke Buffington, the Director of the Student Professional Development Center, Jen Platania, our Associate Provost of Academic Affairs, and professor of economics and andrea sheets who is a uh, 2022 economics graduate who's currently engaged in workforce development work over in forsyth county in winston-salem so i led off by asking them about trends in professional development and it was immediately apparent that short form easy access ways to upskill and reskill our workforce are really popular and valuable trends from their perspectives, highlighting how COVID actually kind of gave us permission to make these types of programs more accessible than they ever were before. So they saw this all as sort of a a positive trend. As we got into your teaching context, there was a theme of thinking about relationships and making learning personal. Jen offered the simple advice of using engaged learning practices But as the panel conversation continued, that really related more to finding authentic ways for you to connect with your learners and for them to connect with each other. Using real examples that they are likely to experience in their positions to help guide your role-playing scenarios or enabling them to co-create an activity to make it a little bit more personal and meaningful might be ways that you could tangibly do that in your workshops. Andrea also shared the reality that young professionals probably aren't very likely to fully commit to outside work, i.e. homework, without some sort of incentives. Uh, But that sort of mirrors on that idea of if you know your students, if you know your learners well, you can probably figure out, along with the other instructors, what those incentives might be that would properly motivate them to uh, really buy into that young professionals program. One idea that came up is that company leadership should really be visibly and actively supporting the program. This might be asking managers or even executives to participate in different ways in the lessons, acknowledging the program or its participants in company-wide communications, or maybe inviting them to serve as sort of short-term mentors within the program as, hey, this is where you could be in 5, 10, 15 years. I really appreciated how that point sort of built on and is connected to that idea of relationships being a central focus of engagement in in your context. So generally, we talked a lot about what young professional programs really do, and Brooke offered the idea of training professional agility, creating workers that can adapt to technology changing, personnel changing, or the world changing, and still contributing to the goals of the company. In your context, really evaluating what sub-skills are being developed while focusing on negotiation, for example, communication, quick thinking, persuasion, critical thinking and analysis will enable you to be clear with your students of what they'll get out of your course and develop new ways to approach those learning outcomes. Within LF Jennings, it seems like a lot of the goals are more on the leadership skills and character building that will allow students to grow alongside and within the company. And in that light, it's a re- it was a really good reminder that the culture you're trying to develop as a company, that these students are likely the ones that will be teaching that culture to other workers and other folks in the company in the future. So all of this conversation left me wondering how you might get creative to engage your learners, both in your course, but also on the broader scale of the Young Professionals program. So John, what are you thinking? First and foremost, I love the feedback. This
1: is exactly what I was looking for. The thing I want to make sure that I'm very clear about is that the executives, uh, the presidents, vice presidents, CEOs of my company—they're not uh, only the reason that we have this program, but they're involved in it. They serve as mentors, volunteers. Uh, they're they're around all the time. And our company, while it is large, multiple hundreds of people. Uh, Being on a first-name basis with those people who hold either C-level or other vice presidential roles is a common occurrence within our company. Uh, I am super interested in the note about things being related to their interests. One of the things that I always struggled with was I wanted to provide a baseline where nobody was given a particular Hand up or a head start based on having information that the other people didn't have. So, with everybody having such a diverse background and doing things in our company from accountancy to project management to engineering, it was always a concern that if I looked at something that was specifically designed towards specifically construction project management, people who don't have that background would be disadvantaged in having those. Uh, conversations those negotiations which is why i used uh, musical theater as my option did they provide any information or any examples of things that would be mutually uh, mutual interest or a related to their interests that were uh, outside of their current chosen profession
0: so i think they actually almost went the opposite way with it is actually lean into it being a part of their current profession. And maybe that's an opportunity where their supervisors or managers might be able to come in and say, hey, this particular role is likely to experience this type of negotiation. And that might put a little bit more pressure on you to design personalized role plays for a given group of of students. Uh, But it would make that both more meaningful for the learners, um, but also probably a lot more engaging. They'll immediately be able to see how they're going to be able to use this as their career is progressing.
1: My thought process had been the entire time that I wanted to provide them with, with baseline skills. And I find that well, it may be more challenging, at least initially, having something that's more tailored to the situation could be incredibly beneficial. One of the other questions I had based on the information that came back from the panel was, I believe they referred to it as professional agility. Where there are there predefined parameters and what that looks like?
0: When I was sort of recapping for our panelists, what I would share with you, I shared the idea of making your Professionals be adaptable. And Brooke specifically offered the term professional agility. It's a term that is sort of encompassing that ability to adapt to things, be resilient to things, cover for other people, learn new skills when a technology changes. But I think the overarching idea is that, you know, you want your learners to be leaders in every aspect of their positions at the company. Understood. I
1: Think back to the cliche about a lot of university education, where it is teaching you how to think, in effect, allowing you to have the tool set to deal with a wide variety of situations and instances. I also love the note, I wrote it down in my notes as cultural transference, and this goes back to the conversation about Having executives and vice presidents and C level members be involved in this training, because I believe that's part of the reason that this particular program was instituted. It takes people who are mid level managers, myself and others, and puts them in direct contact as a mentor or mentee relationship. But it also allows for the values that have allowed this company, which is over 70 years old at this point in time, to thrive. So you talk about the people that are currently in this young professionals class 15, 20 years down the road, being the people who are going to lead the organization. And I believe that's part of why we do this at LF Jennings is specifically so we can keep the things that have made us strong over the long haul.
0: John, it sounds like you have some really strong pieces in place already for this program as a whole. And I'm really excited to hear about how this works out for you um, in the future, how how LF Jennings um, continues to develop this program and how you're able to adapt your negotiations course to some of the advice that hopefully was helpful. Thank you so much for sharing your time and and your company and your classes with us. Well, thank you
1: so much, Matt. This has been a pleasure and an honor. I really enjoyed getting an opportunity to do this with you and get feedback that's so crucial as we try to
0: develop the next generation of leaders. Hi, everyone. This is Matt Whitstein. This episode with John Chesky wraps up for us our first season of full-length episodes of LIMED, Teaching with a Twist. This has been such a fun and meaningful project for me to develop this year, and I'm really excited to share that we'll continue posting some short content on the third Monday of each month through the summer as we prepare and produce season number two. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and please, please, please help us extend our reach to other interested listeners by rating, reviewing, and sharing our podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our work or expressing interest in participating in any of our podcasts... Learn more at www.centerforengagedlearning.org podcasts. And always, keep it zesty. Blind, Teaching with a Twist was created and developed by Matt Whitstein, Associate Professor of Exercise Science. Devani Taprani is an instructional technologist and serves as a producer for the show. Music for the show was composed and recorded by Kai Mitchell, a class of 2024 music production and recording arts student at Elon University. Limed, Teaching with a Twist is published by and produced in collaboration with the Center for Engaged Learning at Elon University. For more information, including show notes and additional engaged learning resources, visit www.centerforengagedlearning.org. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe, rate, review, and share our show to help us keep it zesty.